All right, folks, welcome to the last episode of Left Unread. Off off air, I was just hideously and unceremoniously <laughs> assaulted by my oh, coworker oh and my co-host uh, Evan. Persecuted oh, man. In the world. I am I am the most I am the most persecuted man in the world for my culture and my beliefs, <laughs> and I won't stand for it. I just did the uh, uh basically the uh, the verbal equivalent of drawing and quartering you. Yeah, yeah, you absolutely did. Unacceptable, and I won't stand for it. We don't need to go into details. There's no need to go into details. Um, yeah. So welcome. What's up, man? It's very traumatic for you. You, you don't want to relive <laughs> yeah. it. I'm currently puking and crying right now. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Uh, yes. Yeah, so what's going on, man? Nothing. Nothing much, man. COVID I, uh, is on the out and out. For yeah, you. COVID's on the out. You might still hear me cough or sniffle a little bit. I'm. I think I'm going to have some. <clears throat> respiratory issues for the foreseeable future but nothing major i'm feeling fine went yeah, back to work weird yeah yeah went back to work and uh you know just living a normal shitty life so yeah should be good yeah cool cool yeah how are you uh not too bad you know just uh podcasting with you you know that's, that's it. what i live to do oh fuck yeah well, that doesn't bode well for you and your fulfilling life. Yeah, I just sit here in this chair and wait for the <laughs> the hour and a half every week that we do this. No, no, I, kn- I know that's not true. <laughs> I know that's yeah. not true. You've got a lot of other things to sit on that you... Yeah. Like this dick. Yeah, your own dick. Yeah, you sit on <laughs> yeah. your own... Yeah. Yep. Yeah, I'd like to sit on this dick. <laughs> I bend it up on and I put it up in there like a pretzel. Yep. Yeah, just kind of curled around. Cool, man. That rules. Yeah. Hey, good for you. <laughs> and here I was thinking you had kind of a sad thing going on, but I guess no. You're no, you're... it's a happy thing. Yeah, yeah I was going to say, like, I, it turns out I'm the fucking loser. Yeah, egg on your <laughs> face, bro. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But only egg, which means yeah. I'm missing out. Yeah. Um, what else? I don't know. I don't know. It's officially year two. Of Left Unread? Yeah. I think our one-year anniversary is actually Valentine's Day. Yeah, it's definitely or like the 15th or something. It's like, it might it might be the 15th. Yeah. Um, no, I think it is the 14th. Maybe we release on the 15th, but I remember we recorded, and then I had Valentine's Day with, with my ex, and I think it was well, the same day. Well, we recorded in, like, October. No, but we, we, did, our, we did our first two episodes in October, and then we did yeah. the last one in time for release. Okay. We did it like on Valentine's Day, like earlier in the day, and then yep. we might have released on the fifteenth. But so it's coming up for our actual two year anniversary. But yeah, we're officially in our second calendar. One year, year. anniversary. I'm sorry, one year anniversary. Yep. Yeah, you should I've got a really nice day planned for you. Ooh. I booked I booked you a spa treatment. Um, got February sixteenth. Ho- got us a hotel room. because um, I know how to do anniversaries right. Yeah. Don't ask anybody I've had an anniversary with before. <laughs> Don't get them on the show to refute this. But I know yeah. how to do anniversaries right. And you and me are going to have a special time. Yeah, really? Ooh, and when nice. we come back for the next episode of Left Unread, Evan is going to sound looser than ever. So anyway, it like was vocally. actually February 16th. Fair enough. But I think yep. we recorded on Valentine's Day. I really do. What, for Varg? I think so. Yeah, that released on the 19th interesting yeah. all right whatever who cares um yeah this show sucks i don't want <laughs> we're not gonna okay. celebrate that um 
weird week. It's been a weird week. I yeah. feel I feel like it's been a while since we've done like an actual left on red. It's been like two weeks. Yeah. Yeah, it has. It's been about that, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, so today I'm hoping to wrap up my initial three part series on the Sengoku Jidai. Um, and I yep. say that because there's still so much to talk about. And I realized as I was doing this series that, like, I had to blaze through so much cool stuff. So periodically, I don't think I'm going to do another series, but I think periodically I'll, like, jump back to this time period and talk about, like, specific things, which I know I've mentioned before. But yeah. um, going over today, I realized that I had, like, 19 pages of notes. And I was like, I'm not doing a two-hour episode. I'm just not doing it. That, that No one's going to want to hear that. Yep. And I feel like I'm going to have to go fast through things that I don't want to go fast through. Yeah. So we're at least going to end with like the unification of Japan and some cool stuff and mm. sort of the preceding events to the next shogunate, shogunate the next, uh, you know, government of Japan. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah. So that's what we're going to talk about today. Um, before we dive into that, is there anything you wanted to touch on? Do you want to talk about anything? Do you have an advertisement? Anything that you need to... Uh, no ad, no. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's kind of, I haven't really done much, I guess, since we talked a few days ago. Um, I watched Inherent Vice, uh, for the first and second time this weekend. That was a really good movie. I want to read the book, Thomas Pynchon book. Cool. I don't yeah. know anything about it. What was that? I don't know anything about it. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's, uh, very confusing. It's about, like, a hippie detective, like, Private Eye, in, front, in like, the early 1970s who... It's just, like, constantly on drugs and trying to, like, solve, like, three cases. Hmm. It's pretty cool. That sounds sounds interesting. <clears throat> yeah, it was uh, directed by Paul Thomas Anderson, which, of course, uh, I need to see his new film, Licorice Pizza. Mm-hmm. Still haven't. I need to do that one and watch a couple more before I uh, do, like, a nice little, uh, my top ten films of 2021. Mm. Uh, so you're going to wrap, wrap some of those up in 2022, but do, like, a Yeah, the ones that came out in 2021, yeah. Yeah, that's a good yep. idea. Mm-hmm. Cool. Yeah, other than that, nothing new. Nope. Great. Well, me neither. I've got nothing. I don't have <laughs> anything to talk about except for all this shit that I wrote down. Yeah. So I guess we'll just do that. All right, yeah, let's talk about the, sh- the shit that we have. Yeah. Instead of the <laughs> shit that we don't. Yeah, I guess if we don't have anything, why stretch it? <laughs> yeah. I'd, have, I'd love to get another four minutes out of this, but I don't think we're going to. So <laughs> with that in mind, let's start the show. So I know it's now been two weeks, but you guys remember we wrapped up our last full real episode, uh, Sengoku 2, um, where we talked about Oda Nobunaga and his beginning to unite the quote-unquote nation of Japan uh, under his sole rule. Um, 
<clears throat> I know Evan kept mentioning he was uniting the Chrysanthemum Throne. Not accurate. The Chrysanthemum Throne has been under one rule since the dawn of time. Well, the lands of the Chrysanthemum Throne. Still, still inaccurate. But it's, it's accurate. Well, Evan's actually going to go ahead and take over the episode because <laughs> he's done the research and he knows what he's talking about. So, without further right. ado, Evan, take her away, pal. So they united the lands of the chrysanthemum throne. Yeah, but so uh, we are going to talk about the continuing efforts to unify the rest of Japan um, by his successor, who I mentioned last time, Toyotomi Hideyoshi, who's the second of the three great unifiers. Um, and then we're going to kind of just talk about like what he decided to do once he was in charge and why that was interesting and maybe stupid. Um and then ultimately we're going to lead on to the third guy who we're going to sort of briefly touch on without giving too much away. And then someday maybe I'll do some episodes on the government that you know succeeds this tumultuous period. But we are going to see sort of the official end of the Sengoku period um, this week. Debated by some scholars whether this is the end or not, but I'm going to call it the end because... I've been talking about this being a trilogy for weeks, and I don't want to turn it into a, a quadrilogy. Yeah. So, nice cat. The cat is podcasting. Yeah, man. He, it's, it's, he's podcasting. <laughs> yeah, good one. Yeah, man. <laughs> um, all right, cool. So, I'm trying not to be low energy, but I, I am. I feel very Yeah, you're low T right now, dude. Dude, I feel my T is through the floor. It's unbelievable. Yeah. My balls are so big right now. They're like the size of pears, of Anjou pears. And Your Bushido t- has never been lower. Yeah, that's wicked low. All right. Oh. Here we go. Um, <laughs> <laughs> oh, dude, it's crazy. I'm, I'm literally so tired. All right. Tough shit. I know. <laughs> no, we're doing it. Yep. So, uh, at the end of last installment, um, as I said, we talked about the fall of Oda Nobunaga and the accession of his protege, Toyotomi Hideyoshi. Now, uh, before his death, Oda, uh, the previous kind of head-swinging dick in charge, uh, had been granted the title of Daijo Daijin, which means Lord of the Land or Master of the State. Uh, he wasn't Shogun, yet uh, he probably was hoping to become Shogun at some point. Um, but he didn't quite have enough power in the country to be the Shogun. Um, he came from pretty humble beginnings, and a lot of that rank was prestige. You had to have a certain amount of backers. You had to have a certain sort of clout before anybody would call you Shogun. He was in charge, make no mistake, but uh, he, was, he was not officially the Shogun. Um, we also discussed the fact that he was suddenly and unceremoniously assassinated by one of his subordinates, a guy named Akechi Mitsuhide, at the Honoji mm-hmm. Temple in 1582. Um, and so obviously being murdered kind of cut short his ascent to power. It'll do that. That'll happen. Um, and any ambitions that he had to becoming the Shogun were, were snuffed out. So it's just not going to happen for Oda. He's not going to be the Shogun <clears throat> of Japan. You're not going to hear about the oldest Shogunate. Okay. Um, truthfully, this is probably a foregone conclusion. Um, had history been kinder to Oda, we probably would have, have had an episode on the Oda Shogunate, um, because he was, he was on track to, to just do the thing. Like, Mm -hmm. nobody was stronger than him. He'd already dealt with all the strong central lords, and central Japan at this point was definitely the center of 
power in terms of how strong the daimyo in that region were. The reason being, when you're right in the middle and you're all surrounding the capital, those are the guys with the A, the most fertile lands, so the lands that are most worth fighting over, but B, also the greatest proximity to the ceremonial seat of power, and so the biggest vested interest in trying to conquer each other's lands. So for centuries, mm -hmm. central Japan has been like the biggest stirred up pot of people trying to fucking kill each other and so those guys just end up being the roughest and the toughest yeah plus they have the most land and the most food to feed soldiers um so he's conquered the most difficult part of japan to conquer and now he really just has to conquer the sort of northeast and the southwest um, and then he dies so that's left to be done okay um <clears throat> but as i said history is rarely kind so we're going to spend the rest of this episode talking about some pretty monumental shifts of power, um, which has been sort of the theme of the Sengoku Jidai. It's just people that you think are going to come out on top dying, and then other guys that you might not have suspected, or maybe you did suspect, coming out on top and sort of taking advantage of the, the power vacuums that happen. Yep. But first, let's talk about Toyotomi Hideyoshi. Sure. So we mentioned Let's him last it. week. You guys know he's a general under under Oda Nobunaga. He was born a common or whatever. Um, he's remembered today as as the great unifier of Japan, and he is absolutely worthy of that title. Now he may have already inherited a sort of half conquered nation from Oda Nobunaga, but he also inherited a cadre of of very newly subservient lords uh, who had pledged allegiance to a great and victorious daimyo, not to some upstart peasant, and so. It, while he inherited this, you know, quote-unquote unified country, there's a lot of guys who had been born into being samurai who all thought they were more, had more pedigree for this job than this guy did. And so for him to all of a sudden be like, I'm in charge of you now, a lot of them were like, okay, well, um, let's fight first and figure it out. And so he had a, kind of a twofold job on his hands. Not only did he have to finish unifying Japan and all these other guys who hadn't even pledged allegiance to his his lord but he had all these other daimyo who were like nah man i don't i don't buy it i don't think some like fishmonger's son is going to tell me what to do i'm the son of 10 hundred great lords and i i will not be commanded by you so um he's got to wrangle that mm -hmm. um <clears throat> Now, I mentioned he was peasant-born. Uh, his father, who was likely a farmer or a fisherman, was actually also um, not samurai, but he was what's called ashigaru. Um, mm -hmm. Ashigaru were civilian soldiers in the service of samurai. And in the coming years and centuries, this is not going to be much of a thing anymore. But at this point in the Sengoku period, there's so much war, there's so much going on that, you know, as I mentioned last time, samurai are kind of forced to accept those of low birth quote unquote into their ranks in order to just fill out their armies and just have enough people to actually mount these large scale expeditions and, and, and battles. Mm -hmm. And so this is where you get Ashigaru who are guys that, you know, would oftentimes have really extensive experience and training. They would be, you know, um, as good as anyone at fighting, um, and be well-versed in the use of, of firearms, of spears, of swords, but they weren't nobility. So they didn't have the inherent rights or the uh, titles or the income that samurai would have. So generally, these would be peasant farmers who would, you know, when it was the campaigning season, they would leave their families, they would enter the service of their lord, they would earn a stipend for fighting in battles, and then they would go home in the off season and they would farm and 
raise rice or whatever the fuck. Um, So it wasn't uh, totally without prestige. And as I mentioned during this time, it's totally possible for these Ashigaru to kind of rise through the ranks in the service of a lord and, you know, even be granted the title of samurai. Um, This has obviously, you know, happened to Toyotomi Hideyoshi. Mm -hmm. But um, it wasn't common either. It wasn't like... uh, you could expect to just join up with an army and become samurai and find yourself with a, a domain and, and land holdings and servants and, and subordinates and whatever. Um, still very rare. Later and earlier, it was impossible. Uh, now it's almost impossible, but not entirely unheard of. Mm-hmm. Um, so, as I mentioned, these foot soldiers would be conscripted by samurai and... Um, and sometimes they would have swords and they would have some sort of armor. All their arms and armament, though, had to be provided by themselves. And since most of these people were pretty poor, they're not going to be showing up, you know, dressed like samurai. They're not going to have, like, the full armor that you think of if you've seen any movie or whatever. They're going to have, you know, like, almost like a, like a hoplite in ancient Greece. They're going to have, like, some shin guards, some greaves, maybe, like, a leather helmet, um, a spear, sometimes a sword. And then if their lord had access to firearms they might be given a gun to use in combat Mm -hmm. um but that they wouldn't be expected to provide themselves because that's kind of an expensive weird foreign thing that is relatively new in japan um so hideyoshi's father who was one of these ashigaru was killed in a local conflict when when hideyoshi is like seven years old and so not only did he grow up impoverished which in feudal japan if you're you know a fatherless child um you're pretty unlikely to prosper. Um, mm-hmm. It's 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 a, a very heavily patriarchal society, and um, so it's likely that his mother remarried um, because that's just what you would do if you were a young woman who was still of marriageable age, and and you wanted to have some sort of ability to have your kids be upwardly mobile. Um, but his father, having died in combat, would have probably filled his head with tales of glory and um, wondering, you know. Who was my father? Did he know samurai? Was he, was he samurai? Like you know, and he just sort of had this idea that like, this is what I'm supposed to do. You know, I'm not going to sit here and toil away in the field. You know, I come from a line of warriors, and I'm going to go and fight. And so, at a relatively young age, um, he sought out military service, <clears throat> and wound up in the service of Oda Nobunaga. And we talked last time about how he became uh, a sandal bearer for Lord Oda which is a rank that was relatively high for someone of low birth. So he was basically in charge of carrying Lord Oda's shoes when mm-hmm. he was walking around in his armor so that he could take them off when he entered a tent, put them back on when he set foot outside, whatever. Um, <clears throat> but also this was a military position, and so you would be sort of one of the direct retinue of retainers of that lord, and you would carry a sword, you would be treated you know you were of extremely low but you were of samurai rank and you were in the direct service of a lord so even if it, you were literally the guy who carried his shoes you're still better than you know what you were born as you are now officially samurai uh-huh. um which puts you above 90 percent of the citizenry of the country immediately even if you're the lowest of the low you're still above everyone else so we talked about the fact that over the course of his time as sandal bearer and then later as a general, he sort of makes a name for himself as a really clever soldier. He's sort of brainy. 
Um, mm-hmm. People describe him as being sort of scrawny and small, and they talk about him looking like a monkey. And he's, you know, even from the time he was young, he kind of always looked old. Like, he was not a physically imposing guy. He was kind of a small guy. Um, but he was smart, and he led a bunch of successful campaigns on Oda's behalf. And at the time of his lord's death was uh, on a campaign to subjugate the Hojo clan, who were one of the most powerful clans in Japan. So he had clearly been entrusted with a great deal of responsibility. Um, here's this guy again who was born nobody and has now been put in charge of one of the main fighting forces of the strongest lord in Japan to subjugate one of the, the most powerful clans in all of Japan. <clears throat> yep. So his career has, has gone up. Um, so as we know, he's in the middle of that campaign and he hears word that, uh, Akechi Mitsuhide has, has assassinated Oda Nobunaga. And so immediately he makes peace with the Hojo. He's like, I can't do this. My Lord's been killed. I must go avenge him. And they're like, cool. That sounds about right to us. Cause he was winning. And they're like, we'll make that deal. So <laughs> he stops his campaign against the Hojo, turns his army around. He immediately seeks, um, the head of his Lord's assassin, and he relentlessly hounds him across the country, eventually catching up with him, and he crushes him at the Battle of Yamazaki and takes his head. Uh, that's in 1582. And so at this point, he's like 40. I mean, he's, uh-huh. he's getting older. Um, following his triumphant route of the killer of his lord, Toyotomi Hideyoshi seizes his lord's lands and titles for himself and begins the slow process of consolidating power, despite being of low birth. So as I've mentioned, Toyotomi Hideyoshi was a peasant, um, and actually up until this point, I've been calling him Toyotomi Hideyoshi because a lot of these guys, they change their names when they come to power, and it just gets confusing. Um, his name was actually Hashiba Hideyoshi. He had been given the name Hashiba, which was like not a clan name or anything like that. It was just he didn't have a surname because he was born a peasant, so he's given the surname Hashiba when he enters into Oda's service because a samurai has to have a surname. So the name Hashiba that he took was actually this is I found this kind of interesting. So when he was given the choice to choose his name, he he looked to at the time the four predominant generals of uh, Oda Nobunaga, mm-hmm. and he said, "All right, well I'm just gonna I'm gonna take my name from their names." So his surname Hashiba was taken from Niwa. Nagahide. Now, the character that you pronounce wa in Niwa would be pronounced ha on its own. And then Shibata Katsuye. So, Ha Shiba. That's his last name. Well, his first name in Japan. Um, now, remember Shibata Katsuye because he's going to fucking kill this guy later. And then okay. Akechi Mitsuhide, who is going to kill Oda Nobunaga later. Um, and Mori Yoshinari. So, you get Niwa Shiba Ha Shiba. And then Akechi Mitsuhide, Mori Yoshinari. Hideyoshi. Um, Mm -hmm. So he takes syllables from each of their names, combines them, and so now he's Hashiba Hideyoshi. Um, This meant that no matter how powerful he may have become by this point, he was was 
never going to be taken seriously as a successor to his lord because he's this guy with this sort of made-up name who's born a peasant and um <clears throat> now he's trying to succeed oda nobunaga as like the most powerful guy so he has to be exceptionally careful in figuring out his path from this point forward um he really wants to maintain his position and to avoid being undermined um but also he had to understand that he would never be a true daimyo to many of these lords and so he has to play this delicate game of japanese politics to try and ensure that his legacy and the safety of his family um, he has a young son um, and his line will be safe without overstepping his bounds um, so he he petitions the emperor uh, for a name change um, he keeps the name hideyoshi because that's what everyone calls him and it would be weird mm. to all of a sudden be like i'm john now uh but he changes his last name to Toyotomi and founds a clan. And so all of his relatives are entitled to take that surname. And he is now the a daimyo of clan Hideyoshi. I'm sorry, of clan Toyotomi. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so he now also convenes a meeting of the prominent lords of the land. This is in 1583. And he's going to try to determine who the heir to Oda Nobunaga should be. Because he knows nobody's going to accept that he's the, the rightful heir. So he's just treating himself like, okay, I'm the custodian of the land until someone more suited to the role can step forward and take control. And that's sort of something that the lords of the land can kind of get behind because they don't love mm -hmm. the idea of this peasant being in charge. Um, <clears throat> and so obviously it's not going to be him. Um, but whoever it is is probably going to be the next shogun. So he wants to be in their good graces because theoretically they're going to take power within his lifetime he doesn't plan on dying so he needs to kind of position himself well so uh, oda nobunaga has two living grown sons oda nobukatsu and oda nobutaka <clears throat> um, he had another son who was killed with him at honoji and we'll talk about him in a minute um but so there's two sons left and yep. surprise surprise they don't like each other um, they both think they should be in charge, and they're both like, pick me, pick me, pick me. Um, so they both think that they should assume their father's mantle, and when the council is convened to determine who the best candidate is, they obviously each make an impassioned case for their right to assume the mantle as the leader of the clan. Um, but Toyotomi doesn't buy into this, because he knows that whoever he picks, there's just going to be civil war, and somebody's going to kill the other guy, and it's lords are going to side with each other because they're scrambling for power, and he's just like, no, nah, we're not... I don't think we're going to do that. I don't think we're yep. going to do the whole, like, two brothers fighting against each other thing. That's kind of played out. So we're going to avoid that. Um, and so <clears throat> rather than go into the obvious effect of, like, two brothers fighting each other, uh, he decides to choose Oda's eldest grandson as Oda's heir. Mm -hmm. um, so this is a young kid who's, I think, like, three years old or four years old named Samboshi. Um, who mm -hmm. would go on to be named Hidenobu. Um, he was the son of Nobutada, who was Nobunaga's eldest son, who I said was killed with him at Honoji. Mm -hmm. um, and so he's not a direct descendant of either of the quarreling brothers, but he is their nephew. And he is the son of Oda's eldest son. And so if you are looking at this in terms of like primogeniture, he's sort of one of the logical heirs to the throne. But he's really young, so he needs to yeah, be protected. Yeah, he would be above the other two. If it was if it was primogeniture, he would be above yeah. the other two. But as I've mentioned in Japan, they didn't strictly follow yeah. that. That was it was kind of more nebulous. So, <clears throat> you know, he's definitely I, in the running, and it makes sense to people that he would inherit. But also, it makes sense to people that someone who's an adult who, you know, commands their own armies and could be immediately, you know, able to defend themselves would inherit. You know, it's not like a strict primogeniture situation. 
Yeah. Although, so you know, I uh, I do like that, as opposed to picking quarreling uncles, he goes for a little nephew magic. Yeah, Cuts absolutely. that Gordium knot with the nephew. Mm-hmm. The nephew it was a smart the sword. And that's the thing. He's a smart leader. He's savvy. Like, this is this is a, a, the best political scenario. Plus, this is someone that he can kind of groom and manipulate himself rather than having to contend with. You've got this mm-hmm. young kid, and you can kind of be like, listen, man, I'm your guardian. Yeah, I'm the, I'm the, the regent of the land until um, this kid is old enough. So Toyotomi appoints a council of four generals who are going to aid him in governing the massive territory that he has now inherited. And to officially back his support of the young kid Hidenobu as the rightful successor to his lord. Um, the rightful successor, rather. So long story short, um, not everyone's happy with this arrangement. And Toyotomi Hideyoshi now enters into the first of several civil wars, which are everyone's favorite thing to do in Sengoku, Japan, um, to establish his personal supremacy over the land and the succession. So the first person he fights is Shibata Katsi, who is actually one of the guys whose name he took. Mm-hmm. Um, one of Oda Nobunaga's head generals. Um, <clears throat> so he defeats him in, in open combat. Um, also at the same time, Nobunaga's son, Nobukatsu, um, who's one of the two warring sons, allies himself with Toyo- I'm sorry, with Tokugawa Ieyasu. Um, I wrote the wrong thing in my notes. Mm-hmm. And he sets the future shogun, Tokugawa Ieyasu, spoiler alert, uh, up to fight with the current head of state, who is Toyotomi Hideyoshi. Now, notably, uh, Hideyoshi and Tokugawa never go to war with one another, um, which probably at this point would have gone in favor of, of Hideyoshi, and this sort of plays into the popular narrative of Tokugawa as being the guy who always waits and makes the strategic move. Uh-huh. Um, we'll see that that eventually pays off for him. Um, you mentioned last time, like, does the narrative support that, or do just the facts kind of create that narrative? But mm-hmm. who's to say? Either way... He looks at this situation and is like, I don't think I can beat him, so I'm going to go ahead and back down from this. Um, they have some little proxy skirmishes and stuff, but it never opens into like open warfare. Mm-hmm. Um, they end up exchanging hostages, and Hideyoshi basically adopts like a hands-off policy with Tokugawa. He acknowledges him as like one of the supreme lords of the land and is like, listen, as long as nominally you are my vassal, I'm not going to do a whole lot to like step on your toes. You can kind of govern the Quanto the way that you choose and yep. I will I will leave you to that. Um <clears throat> all of this ends with Hideyoshi deciding that he needs a little bit more legitimacy. So he has himself adopted into the Fujiwara clan, which is one of the ancient <coughs> samurai clans that got has direct <coughs> imperial ties. Um and then he also is married to an adopted daughter of the Minamoto clan. Um so the Minamoto and the Fujiwara are like the two oldest most prestigious samurai clans. They're not as powerful as they used to be but they're still the closest genealogically to the imperial family. And so yep. he's, he's basically buying himself like a pedigree. Um, <clears throat> so he finds himself uh, made heir to the prestigious titles of Daijo Daijin, which uh, Oda Nobunaga had held, but had historically been part of the Fujiwara clan. And he's also made Kampaku, which is the imperial regent. So he rules on behalf of the emperor. Um, he's not shogun, but... At this point, who fucking cares? Because he's got all the power and he's basically in charge. He uh, personally controls 30 provinces, which is 10 more than Oda Nobunaga, which was considered like a huge personal territory. Um, And he distributes the rest of Japan among his subordinates. Um, So now I'm going to skip ahead of a few things because there's obviously more fighting and and there's so much to talk about. But um, I just I got to kind of blaze through. Otherwise, we're never going to get through all the big stuff. 
He's going to spend the next decade unifying Japan. He's going to fly up to the northeast. He's going to go down to the islands in the southwest and um, conquer them, and, and that's just going to be it. <clears throat> so, as I mentioned, he's in charge of the center, um, but there are obviously lords outside of that area who are just kind of naturally outside of the control of whoever's in charge of the center of Japan. Um so between 1585 and 1592, he's going to just completely crush all of his, his remaining enemies. He's going to conquer Shikoku, Kyushu, the rest of Honshu. Um, he puts a stop to all the warrior monks. They were so cool, the Ikoiki, and then another group called the Negoroji. Um, so he just he just stomps everyone out, and uh, that's it. So by 1592, he's, he's in charge of everything. There's absolutely nobody who's outside of his control. Um, I also want to note before we move on that one important step that he takes, which is going to be kind of prevalent in the next 300 years of Japanese history, um, is in 1588, he does what's called the sword hunt. Um, there's a bunch of different words for that in Japanese, but sword hunt works. Uh, he basically goes around and confiscates all weaponry from everyone who is not a samurai. Mm -hmm. Um, and he's basically at this point ensuring that no one is going to be able to take the same route that he took to achieving power um there aren't going to be any more you know peasant warlords rising up and up up uh, upending the status quo from now on it's going to be established rule above all else and there aren't going to be any uh any uprisings there's not going to be any bullshit pet project which i think is really fun and funny it's a little early japanese imperialism and we're going to mm -hmm. see some some war atrocities and just a good old time so at this point uh he's getting old he's in his 50s um he's like 53 and he's been working his way up the ladder for pretty much his entire adult life and is finally against all odds the head guy he's he's it mm -hmm. um and he's only been kampaku which is the imperial regent for a few years um, he's already in his 50s, like I said. And so he's starting to think about his legacy. You know, people are already talking about, well, you pretty much inherited half of this. And, like, what have you really done? You know, you didn't build the army <clears> to <throat> conquer it. You just sort of walked into this. So he's like, all right, I got to find something. I got to find something big. I got to find something crazy that I can do that's going to make everyone look at me and realize what a genius I am and what a military stud I am. Yep. Um, so at this point, he has a three-year-old son named Sudamatsu, who who had died in nineteen. I'm sorry, in 15, 1951, <laughs> in fifteen ninety-one. That's an old three. I know. Um, <laughs> so he's got he's got no heir, um, and his wife is too old to have more kids. Everyone thinks. Yeah. 
So his brother Hidenaga, who would have been his next choice for heir, who was like 10 years younger than him, dies soon after. And he's left with only a nephew, Hidetsugu, who mm-hmm. he summarily adopts and says, okay, well, Uncle Magic, he'll be my heir. Yeah. Um, shortly afterwards, Hideyoshi resigns the role of Kampaku, Imperial Regent, and he takes on the title of Taiko, which basically just means like Regent Emeritus. Um, mm-hmm. But he still has all the political power. He just doesn't have to do any of the rituals and stuff. So he... he pawns off all of the like bullshit like ceremony and imperial stuff on his nephew and he's like i'm just gonna focus on like actually being in charge and i don't have to deal with any of like going to court or like wearing fancy clothes i'm just gonna start conquering shit Mm -hmm. um simple right like like all the all the politics at this time so for a long time uh odo nobunaga had dreamed of conquering china um the ming dynasty is looking really weak to the newly militarized Japanese warlords um, who had long served as sort of members of a vassal state to China. Now, Japan, only in the last, like, 80 years has officially severed ties with China. Um, For the longest time, they were considered a vassal state. Now, as I mentioned before, like, it's not that, like, if China went to war, they would, like, call on Japan to help them. They yeah. didn't really need that. It was more like Japan paid for the privilege of trading for, like, silks and um, necessary goods from the mainland. Yeah, they're kind of like a tributary, right? Yeah. So they're they're paying tribute, and then that buys them the right to then pay for goods, right? So they're yeah. paying for the right to buy things. And that works out they're really well. They're guaranteed for- access to affordable right. goods. Exactly. For a nominal <laughs> fee. Yeah. And which is, you know, very fair. <laughs> Makes a lot of sense. But whatever, it's working out for China. They don't really give a shit. They're not like yeah. directly imposing rule or anything over Japan. They don't fucking care. Japan is like this little I think the name the Chinese name for Japan, Wa, literally means like midget or like dwarf or like <laughs> inconsequential. Like it, yeah. it, it they they clearly just don't care about these like backwards people living on this island. Yeah. Um <clears throat> But so at this point, uh, the lords in Japan are getting kind of full of themselves. And they're looking over at China and they're like, they're so stagnant. They're so weak. They don't even fight constantly like us. It's our right. No, it's our duty to go over there and subjugate them and like impose divine, glorious Japanese rule over over backwards ass old stagnant China. Mm-hmm. Um, which is kind of a fucking wild thing to think. Because if you look at mm-hmm. A, the military might, B, the GDP, and, and the just the general size of these two countries at this point, like the Ming dynasty is still like fabulously huge and wealthy and can field a massive army. And, but the Japanese are feeling full of themselves. Yep. Um, <clears throat> now Oda's plan had always been to infiltrate Northern China um, <clears throat> and launch a sort of like a blitzkrieg assault on the Imperial capital and just sort of quickly take all these important strategic points. He knew that he couldn't just do like a stand-up fight against the biggest army in Asia. But what he could do is storm through the Korean Peninsula, attack northern China, take the capital, um, which was always moving but was always sort of in the north at this point, and just suddenly and swiftly conquer China. And he felt confident mm-hmm. that he could do that. So Toyotomi Hideyoshi says, hey, what's a better way to prove that I'm the better successor to my lord than to actually carry out his pipe dream? Um and I'm not just some rump-fed runyon. Okay, I was gonna say you're gonna skip over that. <laughs> but uh, my I'm, I'm, <laughs> a line that my dad read to me many times when I was a kid from uh, Macbeth, and it is still to this day my favorite insult. 
I hope that it, it shows up in uh, the new yeah. the new Macbeth. All right, the witch, the rump-fed runyon cries. <laughs> um, <clears throat> so he wants to conquer the Ming Dynasty, and so he sets out and he's going to do it. So uh, initially he starts by kind of reaching out to the Joseon Dynasty, who are the kings of Korea. Um, they're more direct tributaries to the Ming Dynasty. They're obviously connected by land. So China has a bit more direct control, um, but also they're, they're a... Um, a buffer state. So they are sort of a border state between China, uh, the Jurchen tribes to the north, who are constantly sort of harassing northern China, um, but also against, um, I think they're called Wako. They're mm-hmm. Japanese pirates that are not affiliated with any particular political entity, but they're constantly harassing the coast of China and Korea. Mm-hmm. And so having Korea there as a tributary state is really beneficial because they can just sort of take the brunt of a lot of the aggression from the Jurchen and from and from the Wako. Yep. Um, and now from the Japanese. But the Ming obviously have a vested interest in preserving the Joseon state. Um, so Toyotomi reaches out to the kings of Joseon and is like, you mind if I just march an army through Korea and attack China? Like, China sucks. Let's just let us do it. Yeah. And so there's all these negotiations over the course of several years while he's, like, fighting his civil wars at home. And the leaders of Joseon are kind of just like, no, because, like, what's going to happen is... You're going to declare war on China. They're going to hear we let you in. They're going to march an army into into Korea. And then all the, this war is just going to be fought here. Yeah. And you're just going to destroy our entire country over a war that we have no vested interest in. So we may as well make our bets and decide who we're going to side with. And so they reach out to the Ming Dynasty and they're just like, mm-hmm. Japan's going to try to invade you. And we tried to stop them and uh, help us. Yep. And so they're basically hedging their bets and deciding that, listen, we're going to go with the big, strong, powerful, ancient empire over here. And Not I to mention that, you know, it kind of it seems pretty chill to be like a vassal of China. Yeah, and it's so, like... You know what I mean? It's like, it's like, I don't know, we give them money, but like they kind of fuck off. Yeah, they don't really, <laughs> they don't really care. Like, you do your own thing. They don't want to directly administer you. Yeah. They just want you to, you know, tell everyone how great they are and make them feel special. And yeah. so that's what they do. Um, but at least this way, there's the potential that the Ming Dynasty will support them financially and militarily. The, the war is going to happen in Korea anyway. They may as well have the backing of one side or the other. Yeah. And I don't think, and rightly so, I don't think they trust the Japanese to really be able to uphold any sort of alliance that they make just because they're just not strong enough. Yeah. <clears throat> the only people that really think they are are the Japanese. And, well, we'll see what happens there. So, um, initially, in 1592, Toyotomi sends a force of just under 160,000 men to take the Korean Peninsula. He's going to try to quickly conquer the Korean Peninsula and then use this as a staging point to land troops, assemble uh, siege weaponry, and just have sort of like a mainland base of operations through which to conquer China. And so if Korea is not going to just let them march through, then they'll just take the peninsula and they'll march through it anyway. Yeah. Um, so the samurai, who are basically the entirety of the invasion force. Now, I mentioned that they are Ashi, Ashigaru, but this invasion force is actually comprised predominantly of actual samurai. Um, they're incredibly skilled and experienced after decades of war at home. And they, they do initially basically bulldoze the Korean land forces. Um, within three months, they conquer almost the entire Korean peninsula. Like, they land and they just fucking... Whoop, like sweep through the entire country and just conquer mm-hmm. everything. And there's not a whole lot. They're just not used to like these psychos with their fucking katanas and they're like yeah. weird. Like they're just so used to fighting and the Koreans are just like, dude, we mostly just do like poetry and farming and shit. Like 
Ah, like, okay. <laughs> like, yeah, they're is, like, we got China to protect us. What are these fucking sickos doing? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, whereas Japan has just been spending, like, centuries at this point on their <laughs> island just like we fucking kill each other dude, <laughs> yeah, dude what's your like hobby fighting honing their craft yeah of killing each other <coughs> that they're finally like all right let's let's export this shit <laughs> let's let's do fighting against other people yeah let's export the <clears throat> kill machine um <laughs> yeah they realize that fighting against other people who only do fighting is kind of hard so like why yeah. not do fighting against people who do other stuff yeah so uh they swiftly conquer most of the peninsula. Um, so I mentioned in previous episodes and earlier this episode that the Japanese had access to firearms, which were brought mm. by the Portuguese, um, because, you know, the Portuguese well. always just doing the right thing and um, yep. making a quick buck by selling guns to psychos. So they <laughs> they bring guns over. Um, now, the Chinese and the Koreans had guns, too, because um, they were also trading with the Portuguese. Um, but the Japanese, as I mentioned, had just been fighting each other for almost a century. So they'd spent a lot of time really, like, refining and improving upon these firearms and had, by this point, basically created, like, you know, early modern muskets on their mm-hmm. own and had gotten to the point where they could create and reproduce better firearms than the ones that they bought from the Portuguese. They were more reliable. They were more sturdily built. Um, and they just were more suited to native Japanese tactics. Um, on that note, they had also spent decades training um, soldiers in the use of these firearms. So they had their own set of tactics. They had um, a really reliable method of like firing and then replacing ranks, whatever. If you've ever seen The Last Samurai where they show like uh, it's a it's a really hysterically bad, entertaining movie where it's just like, and they needed a white man to teach them how to fight. And <laughs> Tom Cruise basically goes in and is like training all these like you know former samurai how to like teach people how to use guns. And it's like, it's just funny because there were guns in Japan and they they knew what they were doing with them. Yeah, they already um, knew how to use guns. Now there is a certain element of truth because guns will be outlawed in Japan by yeah. the next government, but. Still, it's just funny. There, there, there was a sort of a long, rich history of them being really good at this, um, yeah. <clears throat> and specifically Oda and then his successor Toyotomi made extensive use of them because it's like if you have this this weapon that's going to give you an edge over these like old, powerful lords that have been in charge for a long time, why wouldn't you fucking use it? So that's a big part of how he's so initially successful because the Koreans just aren't prepared for these like psycho samurai armed with muskets to like show up and just start blasting everyone. <clears throat> so in this front, um, they were the samurai were superior. They also did have really high quality swords and spears and and bows and armor, and they were great horsemen and whatever. Like they're they're legitimately skilled warriors. You know, I don't mean to like underplay that. Mm-hmm. Um, but China and Korea do also have access to higher quality metal ore. Um, and so as much as people are like obsessed with the idea of the katana and everybody likes to think about it being this like anime weapon that can like cut through whatever, um, theoretically China and Korea would have been able to produce like higher quality weaponry and, um, stronger swords and things like that. Now, everybody talks about folded steel. There's an element of truth to that. The Japanese did have some techniques to turn their really shitty iron into like pretty decent steel, but Mm -hmm. there wasn't this like technological edge on that front. It's not like a katana could cut through a Chinese sword any better than the opposite could do the same. Like we don't idolize the Chinese and Koreans of this period to the same degree, but they were, they'd been doing this for a long time too. So there's a lot of really skilled fighters on both sides.
Despite the fact that they were kind of evenly matched in terms of like steel and technology and stuff, the, the Japanese are with their guns just going to bulldoze them on land. Um, and so there's little that the Koreans can do to deny this land assault, but there are some points where the Koreans and then the Chinese have like an edge, not just where they're evenly matched. So um, they had a way superior naval power, and the Japanese had spent basically no time in their entire history becoming good at boats. They just didn't care about it. They thought it was kind of stupid and. Boats were just ways to land troops on land, to fight on land, which is how men fought. So the Koreans take advantage of this and just constantly harass and disrupt the Japanese supply lines. Um, they're sinking their ships. And one of the ways that they do this is that the Koreans have cannons on their ships, which is something the Japanese just haven't bothered to think about. Yeah. Um, they're not quite as advanced as European cannons at this time, but they're, they're cannons. And so, you know, if one side has them and one side doesn't... Um, it's going to suck. They weren't much use on land, but on land, the Koreans had something really cool called a huacha, which is sort <laughs> of like a ballista. Huacha. That's, yeah, if you guys have ever heard of a ballista, it's it's kind of like a big like bow and arrow that's set up like a cannon and it like it's launches. A bolt yeah, like it exactly. It throws these big iron arrows or bolts um, over long distances to like just eviscerate people. Now, a huacha <clears throat> is like that on steroids. So, imagine a wheelbarrow. <laughs> yeah, look up a huacha. So yeah. imagine a wheelbarrow that has like this like grid shaped like sort of lattice set up on top of it, and in each of the little holes in this lattice is an arrow, like a like a giant arrow with a rocket, like a firework attached to the back. And so what you would do is you would wheel that up to like face the opposing forces. Jesus. Christ. And then you would take a torch and just light all the arrows and it would basically just launch like 50 rocket powered arrows oh. at your enemy. Now, they're pretty cool, right? Yeah. Yeah. So cool as shit. (laughs) um, And you might be thinking that's probably not very accurate, but when you've got like fifty of these things lined up and you're just launching like you know thousands of rocket-powered giant iron bolts at the enemy, they don't really have to be accurate. They're gonna scare the shit out of horses. They're gonna fucking kill people. They're just gonna sow discord and disarray among the enemy ranks. So this is something that the Japanese were not at all prepared for, and the Koreans use these to pretty devastating effects against them on land. Um, uh, also really important to note is that the Koreans at this point had some of the best archers on the planet. Um, the Japanese love to talk about their school of archery and it's like this ancient noble art, whatever. Um, but they're at this point basically just using simple bamboo longbows, um, which are large and clunky and unreliable and they require a ton of energy to draw compared to the amount of force that they're able to unleash. Um, meanwhile, because of their proximity geographically, to uh, the Asian steppe tribes, the Koreans had been using compound bows for centuries, which are the same types of bows that like the Mongols use, the Jurchens use, the Manchus would later use. They're made of multiple different materials, kind of curved and then recurved over each other. So they're small, but they're massively strong. And they're held together by like natural glue made from animal fat and like, 
so you get this tiny little bow that looks very distinct with the sort of outer edges pointing in the same direction that the arrow is going to shoot. But mm-hmm. they can shoot an arrow further, faster, stronger than a longbow with the same amount of force, and they're really small. So, like, you can use them on horseback. They're easy to transport. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the Japanese might have had these firearms that could, like, shoot further and stronger than any bow, but the Koreans could shoot, like, six arrows for every shot fired by a musketman. So it's kind of like more of an even playing field than the Japanese so, would have. Oh, so wait, sorry, I was just kind of reading up Hwacha <coughs> a little bit. Are you saying yeah. that the Koreans, they had these, like, recurve bows, you're saying? The Koreans do are using yeah. recurve bows. So if you look yeah. up a Japanese bow versus a Korean bow, yeah. you'll see how different they are. Japanese bows are huge. Yeah. So, um, utilizing superior naval technology, the Korean fleet, um, who are supplemented by the Chinese fleet, are able to just sort of harry the Japanese supply lines, and they delay the Japanese invasion long enough or distract them long enough for actual Chinese forces to enter on land from the north. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> and as I mentioned, like, people think of the samurai as a sort of, like, unstoppable combat force, but China has been embroiled in border wars for its entire existence, has had its fair share of civil wars. The Ming Dynasty, who are in charge of... of China at this point can field a fighting force of almost a million men, which is mm-hmm. just vastly superior to anything the Japanese are able to field at this point. Um, and also not for nothing, but um, the Ming literally came to power by overthrowing the Mongol Yuan dynasty. So like they're they're a warrior dynasty themselves. They it's been a couple centuries, but they're um, literally their claim to fame is overthrowing foreign invaders, and so. There's a lot of popular support behind them defending the country, and they're able to do so really successfully. Mm -hmm. Um, The Japanese never make it into Chinese territory. The Ming just send waves of troops through Korea and just smash them. And eventually they're like, okay, we got to regroup. We got to regroup. And and this is with the Chinese sending not their full force, just just enough. They send just enough. Because, like, to them, like I said, the Japanese is this sort of, like, little or nothing, inconsequential island that no one fucking cares about and japan's like we're gonna conquer you and they're like yeah that's really adorable like, yeah imagine what like imagine what the chinese must have thought when they got like the messages from yeah. korea they were they were like, probably really offended yeah <laughs> seriously i think that the, the response was sort of like how fucking dare they <laughs> and they're, yeah. they're just like we'll let our <laughs> other like after they idiot. get over the disbelief like really japan like what's japan <laughs> oh wow oh those guys yeah, that's weird. They haven't sent us yeah. rice in a while. That little fucking piece of shit. Those. <laughs> that those. After everything I did shit. for you, you yeah. stabbed me in the heart. Yeah. Um. So what have I yeah. ever done to make you treat me so disrespectfully? <laughs> so the Japanese uh, briefly uh, surrender their conquests from 1950. I'm sorry, I keep doing that. 1595 <laughs> to 1597. Yeah. Um. But then Toyotomi, because he doesn't, he's getting older and he's sick now. Like he doesn't want to give up, so he he orders a second invasion, oh. and it goes basically the same way as the first one. Um, yeah. Like right off the bat, they conquer almost the entire Korean Peninsula. The Koreans hold them off. Their navy is superior. Then the Ming send troops in and just fucking smash the Japanese and um, basically just send them back to Japan with their tails tucked between their legs. And they never they never make any substantial land gains in Chinese territory. And China's just like, yeah, well. We all knew how that was going to go, but good try. Um, again, this is all going to come back later because there's this like massive Japanese like cultural disappointment over this that carries over into World War II. And mm-hmm. they're just like, yeah, well, <laughs> yeah. remember? remember? <laughs> and they, they, they take it out on China in a big yeah, way. Yeah, and then the second Sino-Japanese War happens. 
Yeah. And it's <laughs> and some not that chill stuff goes on in Manchuria. Super not that chill. <laughs> yeah. And also in Korea. I mean they they do yeah. re- retake Korea. And and it should be noted not that far in the future from this. Like yeah. This is in the 1590s. So it's a couple hundred years, but like yeah. It's not an interminable amount of time. Like they 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 come back in a couple centuries as like one of the dominant fighting forces on planet Earth. Like, and right after being forced to open, like, the, the <coughs> Western colonial yeah. powers were just like, no, we can make money off you. There are markets. You're going to open up. And Japan was just like, all right. Oh, Lord, I'm going back to the old me. <laughs> <laughs> you try to get out, and they pull you back in. Yeah. <laughs> um, and and they then they just, like, within 50 years explode and just, like, conquer yeah. massive swaths of uh, Asia and Micronesia. Insane. Really insane. That's another subject for another day, but it's... Yeah. They're setting precedence here. Um, yeah, within 50 years of being forced to deal with the rest of the world, the rest of the world is definitely regretting yeah. <laughs> the decision. Um, so the lasting effect of these these conquests... Um, you know, Toyotomi was doing this with the intent of establishing his, like, military supremacy and showing everyone back home, like, how strong he was and how worthy he was. Um, but what he ends up doing is just, like, smashing his own military might in these, like, totally futile campaigns against just a far superior enemy, both numerically and technologically. And so, yeah. at the end of this, not only has he basically neutered himself militarily, because he's just killed a lot of his most experienced troops, because he sent all his best guys over there, um, but he's also physically incredibly weak because I mentioned before he was sick and by now he's like a babbling fevered fucking freak. He's like 60 mm-hmm. years old and he's just losing his mind. And, you know, we don't know what he had cause it's a long time ago, but, um, he's not doing well. Yeah. But Hey, that's Sengoku Jidai, man. He fucking that's number wang baby. That's number wang. He shot his shot and he would have been a little bitch if he didn't. Everybody would have looked at him like he was a little nothing. So he's like, I'd rather, yeah. honestly, I'd rather lose big than win small. Yeah. And, uh, that's, that's, if there, if there is a motto to the Sengoku, it's like lose big, don't win small. Like nobody respects a guy who doesn't fucking kill all of his men in like a failed attempt at conquest. <clears throat> so that's what he does. Um, <clears throat> so yeah, he, he eventually dies and that's what ends up ending the second invasion um but i don't want to get too ahead of myself because we're going to backtrack a little bit and we're going to talk about him and what's going on back home and the whole deal with him dying and being sick he's been sick for a while um and he's been trying to do this whole korea thing as like a dick measuring contest against all his fellow lords 
Um, and meanwhile, remember, <clears throat> he had appointed his nephew, uh, Hidetsugu, as his successor. And this guy has become the new Kampaku while he's just focusing on Korea. His nephew is doing all the ceremonial leadership stuff. Um, and he doesn't have a son, right? Well, guess what? In 1593, he has another son. Surprise. Uh, one nice. of his concubines uh, has a kid. And he's just like, fuck yeah, I have another son. Um, which, you know, we sort of saw this last time. It's like, what happens? There's going to be a big succession issue. Nope, because we- <laughs> he does what any sensible lord would do. He knows his son is just going to get fucking murked by his cousin um, uh-huh. as soon as as soon as he dies. He knows his little son is just going to get like either abducted or killed or whatever. So he does what any a loving uncle would do, and he orders his adult nephew to retreat to some distant mountain and fucking kill himself. And any of his close family and retainers who don't follow his example are hunted down and also murdered by uh, his loyal his loyal soldiers. That's some uncle magic right there. It goes both ways, buddy. It goes both ways. And uncle doing his nephew dirty like that. Oh, yeah. Yeah, he goes up to him. He's like, hey. I'd like you to meet your, your little cousin. Um, also, if you could kill yourself. Yeah. So, <coughs> nephew, I'm going to need you to do a solid for your old uncle. <laughs> Listen, I know you're going to do some fuck shit once I die, so while I'm still alive, I'm going to need to see you kill yourself. Um, (laughs) I'm going to need proof that you did it, and that's kind of it. Otherwise, I mean, I'll do it, but I would prefer that you did it. Yeah. You should do it. So you can retain your Bushido. So the problem is, his nephew's dead, and he's got this new heir uh, who's just like a little baby. And he's sick. He's, like, going to die. There's no way he's going to live long enough to see this kid grow up. So he, he's kind of starting to act a little stupid now because he wants his own son to inherit. Um, so by the time he dies, which is years later, the kid's, like, five years old. Mm-hmm. And <clears throat> he's not going to have any other kids. Um, so he's like, I got to figure something out because I'm dying and this kid's small. And nobody respects a small little kid being in charge because we all know how that works. So he decides, all right, I got to appoint. A council. A council of five. Because it's an odd number, and five is enough guys where no one man will get too powerful. They'll all keep each other in check. And that's actually kind of smart. And they'll all keep Mm -hmm. each other in check, and they'll be tasked with upholding, you know, my rule. Uh, They will protect my son until he is old enough to rule, and then they will abdicate in favor of his rule. And that's nice in theory. Like I said, there's a certain checks and balances kind of vibe there, but... Again, just like in current day, you know, checks and balances are great on paper. We don't always see them work out that way. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> but so he chooses five of the most powerful daimyo in the land. And they're going to be the direct rulers of the land. They're just going to have to agree on things by, like, uh, majority vote. And that's yep. just going to be how it goes. Um, <clears throat> this council is called the Gotairo. And <clears throat> the chosen daimyo of the Gotairo are Okida Hide, Maida Toshie. Usugi Kagekatsu, who's the heir to Usugi Kenshin, the dragon of Kai. I'm sorry, mm-hmm. the dragon of... There's the tiger of Kai and the dragon of... Shinzo? Echigo. Dragon of oh, Echigo. Echigo. Uh, Mori Terumoto, who's the heir of the Mori clan. Um, another <clears throat> old school powerful clan. And Tokugawa Ieyas. And we remember him. He's been a big deal this whole time. He waits. Tokugawa waits. And then, of course, because the Japanese don't like to do things simply, he's got this council of five. He appoints a sixth member who's not nominally a member, but who is a member. Um, and this is Kobayakawa Takakage. That's that's a tough one for me. Yeah. Kobayakawa Takakage. <laughs> you nailed it. Kobayakawa Takakage. That's as close as I think I'm going to get. I think that's as close as we're going to get. Good job. Takakage. 
Kobayakawa. Kobayakawa Takakage. That's it. You did it. Nice. Um, so there's six guys on the council. Fuck spot. yes, bro. <laughs> Fuck yeah, bro. Kobayakawa, bro. Not in this house. <laughs> Not in this house. No. Um, <laughs> So, um, these guys, these six members of the five-man council, uh, they have a special oath that they swear to Hideyoshi, and I just copied it down. I think I got this off Wikipedia. This is, like, the Wikipedia translation, so I don't speak Japanese. I don't fucking know. Um, So, on the fifth day of the eighth month of 1598, the commissioners and the regents signed the following articles. Article 1, that they should serve Hideyori, the son of Hideyoshi, with the same single-minded loyalty that they had shown Hideyoshi. Article yep. 2. The rules of Hideyoshi's house shall not be altered. When in the administration of public affairs, the five commissioners were unable to determine on a course of action, they were to consult their master, Hideyori, through Ieyasu, or Toshie, uh, or necessary of taking action, the emperor has to be consulted. So right away you see that Ieyasu and Toshie, two of these daimyo, are kind of the senior, they've been serving Hideyoshi the longest. And so if there's an argument among yep. the guys and they can't reach a consensus, those two guys will directly go to the young heir. They will consult with him, and then they'll come up with a solution. And if those two can't agree, they'll go to the emperor. Um, Article 3, there will be no factions amongst them. So they're not supposed to team up with each other against each other. Mm -hmm. Personal considerations and partiality of every kind will be excluded from their council. So that's really ambitious, but not likely to agree. Yeah, let me tell you, uh, anytime there was a a suggestion that uh, people should not form (coughs) factions... They always form factions. They're just like, ooh, factions. You know, I hadn't thought of that. Uh, <laughs> yeah. We should form one of those. Yeah. Um, article 4. The five commissioners or overseers must strive to work together in the administration of public affairs, suppressing all petty jealousies and differences. So even if they don't like each other, they got to learn to get along. Mm-hmm. Um, again, not very Sengoku of you, Hideyoshi. You're yeah. not really keeping with the times right now, my guy. That's not number wang. That is super not number wang. <laughs> uh, and then Article 5. In settling matters, the opinion of the majority was usually to be followed. But at the same time, if the opinion of the minority showed no signs of being dictated by any personal interests, it should be duly considered. If it should happen that only a few of the overseers were present when some question was settled, the absentees had no right to object unless it was quite evident that the private interests of the commissioners present at the meeting prejudiced their minds in a wrong direction. In that case, another meeting might be called. So this is going to come into play later um, because you're going to see lots of situations where voters were forced while not everyone was present but basically the law is unless you can prove that the guys who were actually at the meeting had some vested interest in doing the wrong thing if you didn't show up you didn't get a vote Mm -hmm. and so there's these five guys in the council but if only two of them or three of them are there and they make a decision that is ruled by Hideyori the young heir or at the worst case scenario the emperor to be just then it doesn't matter and those decisions will just be carried so it's in the vested interest of all these guys to be present as much as possible and to try to stop their opponents from being present as much as possible. So he's basically setting this up for some fuck shit to go down. Yeah. Uh, Article 6. It goes without saying that all accounts had to be kept in a manner that was above suspicion. Uh, There were to be no irregularities and no pressing of personal interests in this line. So just everything has to be written down and made public. Uh, Article 7. 
Whatever Hideyoshi desired to be kept secret, whether it were connected to his private life or with the government, must on no be account be allowed to be uh, leaked out. Mm-hmm. So no talking about Hideyoshi's secrets even after he's dead, which is like a really funny thing to include. <laughs> like, I just remember you guys are the promise you can't tell. You can't tell any of this with the weird stuff I told you. You can't. Yeah, say this any is of like it. in the middle of. Uh, oh, I guess it's towards the end of the articles. He's like, oh, by the way, just don't blab. <laughs> Don't run your mouth. I know I told you some secrets. Yeah, we yeah. don't talk about those. I know I'm going to be dead, so sign it. Yeah. Sign it. You're not going to say any of those. You can't talk about my micro penis. Um, <clears throat> Article 8. If any of the commissioners or their followers found that unconsciously they had acted contrary to the orders given to them, they were at once to report the same to their superior officers, who would then deal leniently with them. So mm-hmm. if you are a member of... Uh, the council or the commissioners who are the people that work under them to directly administer the provinces and you decide you did something illegal as long as you admit it you won't be in big trouble just tell me what you did wrong and it's okay just uh-huh. you, you just have to be honest again there, this is all very ambitious there's no fucking chance in hell that this is how things are gonna go um and then in conclusion hideyoshi used a talisman called a gofu uh kumano gofu um from the kumano shrine and he makes this oath with the daimyo, and they all have to swear on this 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 holy relic. And it's said that when his death was near, he made the five elders uh, write vows to remain faithful to him after his death. And this vow is known as the Kishomon, which is the sacred vow that they all made on his deathbed to support him in all things. So, who wants to place bets on whether or not this kid is going to stick around long enough to succeed his dad? Uh, I will not bet that he will you don't want to no i i bet that he won't be around long enough mm. what do you think the odds are that he's gonna die um i'd say 90 percent. yeah not good it's yeah not looking good <laughs> not good at all no nope. and here we are with our episode basically done uh we don't know we don't know what's gonna happen with this yep. young man um, so there's gonna be a there's gonna be a continuation of this, but it'll just be like a separate thing because there's yeah. more to talk about. Um, <laughs> this basically wraps up the actual Sengoku period. Japan is now united. Um, there's a whole fun second period of of sort of what becomes the sort of norm. It becomes more about like political infighting. There are gonna be a couple more like big battles, but it's less about actual warfare and it's more about you know these lords who have been put in charge of the air and how they're gonna maneuver against each other, and it becomes a much more cerebral game. Um, and so that'll probably end up being just like a second set of episodes where we talk about the rise of whoever is going to rise. Um, and we'll see. It's Tokugawa. <laughs> but seriously, uh, <laughs> you should take bets on which one of these guys is going to kill this kid. Cause, uh, <laughs> I'm not saying he's going to die, but <laughs> no, he's about to die. He's going to die. And one of these guys is going to fucking kill him. Yeah. So, <laughs> so you know, yeah, that baby's ass is dead. No, no. Oh, Hideyoshi is, I mean, what is it? What is Hidetada? I forget his name. The little kid. You don't even know. <laughs> I don't even uh, remember. I forget. I think it's Hidetada. Yeah. Hide, Hideyori. Uh, I'm trying to look. Hideyori. It's Hideyori. Hidetada, yeah. I think, was one of the others. But, um, so Hideyori is, is, is going to die. Yep. Probably shouldn't have killed your nephew. This is what happens to Yeah, man. When if you left your nephew. His nephew. That's the thing. He didn't leave uh, somebody in the family. Now, I'm not saying that the uncle wouldn't have killed his nephew, but the uncle would have probably defended the nephew long enough to help him fight off the other guys. And then, you know, and then the whole thing, it's just, it's just, oh, it's a recipe for disaster. Mm Mm-hmm.
But that's the end of that's the end of Sengoku Three. We 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 got through it, and uh, and there's still more intrigue. There's still more crazy shit to discuss, and I just <coughs> I just don't have the time. We just don't have the time. We do not have it because there's you know I had started on the next part. But then I was like, there's no fucking way. This would have been a two and a half hour episode. Yeah. So, here we are. Trying to keep it to a tight 60. Yeah. And we kind of uh, came pretty close. We went a little over, but we came yeah. pretty close. Yep. I think a tight 60 is a nice length. Yeah. So, anyway, thank you guys for uh, uh, for, for for bearing with me while my voice recovered. Uh, I am still <coughs> going to go cough myself to sleep. Um, but Yeah, you sound less crazy today than you did the last time. Yeah. Yeah, it's definitely getting better, so... So yeah, that's my episode. Cool. Yeah, what'd you think? You got anything to add? Any questions? Oh, um, yes, I actually did have some banter and I forgot about it. I sent you some of it, but um, fucking the uh, <coughs> uh, Ridley Scott Napoleon movie that's gonna start filming. Yeah, it looks really good. Yeah, I mean now uh, I will forever rue the day that Stanley Kubrick's Napoleon film got canned. Yeah. Because that probably would have been like the greatest movie of all time. It would have been so <laughs> swag. Like, dude, he you had talk already about been that a lot. What? What'd you say? I said you talk about that a lot. Yeah, I mean, like he had Not already like scouted out locations. Jack Nicholson was gonna play Napoleon. That would have been but, insane, dude. <laughs> now here's the thing, man. Waterloo, we're gonna. Yeah. It's not a very good Jack Nicholson, but still. Yeah. Parlez-vous um, français? Although I guess he was Corsican, so he probably wouldn't. Have. Anyway. Yeah, he probably pronounced it weird too. Yeah. <coughs> Napoleon de Bonaparte. Napoleon de Bonaparte. Yeah, Napoleon de Bonaparte. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you yeah, you dude. Yeah. yeah, man. Um but so yeah, that's good. It's gonna have Joaquin Phoenix as yep. Le Petit Caporal. Which so. means the little cock. <laughs> Doesn't it? Uh I'm actually not sure. Maybe. Forget what it means. A little rooster or something. Oh yeah, maybe. Yeah. Well, I get the. Uh, oh no, it's just a little corporal. Oh, the little corporal. Yeah, because huh. his troops called him that. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah, um, that looks cool. Yeah, I'll see it for sure. Yep. But yeah, anyway, yeah. So I'm excited for that. That's gonna. Kick Hell ass. Yeah. And the thing is, wasn't Napoleon like 5'8"? <laughs> yeah, he was like <clears throat> normal sized. Yeah, he was like totally like normal height. <clears throat> now maybe, okay, so maybe he wasn't 5'8", but he was normal height for like his time. I think he was like 5'6". Yeah, so he for his for his age, he like <coughs> the time that he was living in, he was like average height. Yeah, I think he just kept himself surrounded by like guards that were taller. Yeah, so he looked small compared to like his personal guard. Yeah, yeah and it was also, it was like British propaganda. Yeah, that, that they tried small. to. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think he was also, like, kind of slight. Like, so he was, like, a skinny dude, too, until yeah. he got older, and then he got, like, a little pot belly. <laughs> Fucking A. Yeah, Napoleon not me. rocks. I'm just big with a pot belly, and it's not even a <laughs> pot belly. It's, like, a barrel belly. <laughs> Napoleon does rock. 
Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm nervous to do any Napoleon episodes cause the age of Napoleon is out there and it's such a good show. Yeah. It, it's amazing. But maybe we could like, maybe once we get enough clout, we could see if we can get him on here and we could do yeah. a Napoleon episode. Okay. Okay. Well, I gotta go cough myself to death. Thank you guys for another wonderful installment of left on red and for bearing with us through the holidays and the delays and the, me being sick and all that we appreciate it immensely yeah and sticking with us through the first year yeah seriously of left on red it's been really fun doing the show and and i think i speak for both of us when i say uh that that it's been one of the cooler things we've done yeah you know ever so yep so definitely uh we appreciate it as always uh you'll see links in the pod notes to where you can find our theme music where you can find our twitter our instagram uh you can email us um please feel free to reach out over any of those platforms we received some really nice messages from some fans over this past week on twitter that was really cool um yep I'm doing okay. Thank you for asking if you're listening. Um, (laughs) And then uh, what was the other thing? Oh, yeah. Um, Word of mouth is our bread and butter. You guys have obviously been doing that. And we ask that you continue to do that. If you know anybody that you think would like this show, um, please pass it along. Because we're just a couple of fucking dummies who do this literally in our spare time for fun. Which is why we end up delaying episodes. And, you know, we can't afford to do this as our job. So we just do it when we have time, and um, we put a lot of our time into it. This ends up being like what takes up most of my free time. So, yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah, seriously. So you know, if you guys keep uh, spreading the word out there, yeah, um, you know, hopefully we can get to a point where we can start doing this. Um, you know, uh, maybe like you know, spend more time on it, release more stuff. You know, if we can uh, yeah. make it kind of like part of our income. So that would be cool, and we and. <laughs> I think with that would only come an increase in quality as we were able to devote yeah. more time to research and stuff. So, yeah. Um, so keep passing the word along because that only helps us get to the eventual goal of doing this more um, yeah. rather than less. Because <laughs> I think we both agree that we would like to do this more. And, uh, yes. We just are so fucking tired. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh. Yeah. There's a, yeah, it's like a part-time job on top of our full-time job. It, it's, it's like having like a college course. Um, with very regular homework that you get nothing for except yeah. for like personal fulfillment yeah so help us get more than that <laughs> give to us <laughs> um all right well unless you have anything to add nope this is uh cam and this is evan no no this is evan that's cam this is evan you, you always say evan. this yeah this is evan that's evan and uh welcome to evan and thanks for listening to evan Yeah, left on Evan. Evan.